Good morning, FCC family. Open your Bibles, please. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, and while you're grabbing your Bibles, while you're flipping to Matthew chapter 5, I'll just say congratulations to Sam and Hannah. Sam's in the sound booth this morning operating the camera and the, the sound equipment. Thank you, Sam, for being here. But congratulations to you for... Um, for reproducing and building the church in your own in your own way, we appreciate that. We love babies here. Um, we've had a baby born here. Uh, just or, I forgot the day. It was a late March, something like that, um, or early April, and we haven't even met the little guy yet. But uh, congratulations to Kyle and Mackenzie as well. So anyway, the baby the baby boom continues, and the baby boom continues with boys. Uh, at church. So anyway, Matthew chapter 5, we're just going to be looking at uh, intensely at verses 1 and 2, but I'm going to read a, a broader passage. I'm going to read the whole passage of the Beatitudes. Um, just to give you some context on what all is going on here, uh, at this point, the first four chapters uh, are talking about Jesus' um, lineage first and then his birth. Uh, and then it also talks uh, about his baptism and the temptation. And so uh, we get the story of Jesus from the ancient past all the way up to his birth, to his adult years. Uh, and then the movement is really, uh, really starting. Uh, the movement uh, that, that he's going to be, a, excuse me, a part of, and, and that really that God used John the Baptist to stir up and to get a kind of a, a base and a foundation going for it. And then Jesus is going to identify with John the Baptist movement and then take it from there. John will decrease. Jesus will increase. Uh, Jesus has been tested at this point in the wilderness, uh, tempted and, and found to be uh, victorious over sin, victorious over, over the devil. He's, he's doing God's will. He's doing it the right way. And Jesus' father is completely pleased with him as his son. Um, but right now, it's about to start uh, the, the, in earnest, um, um, the whole teaching ministry. Uh, and Jesus, uh, through, for the next three years, is going to, he's going to teach, he's going to heal, he's going to cast out demons, he's going to right wrongs. His ultimate reason for coming is to die on the cross as a sacrifice to forgive sin, to buy purchase, to, to, to purchase forgiveness and atonement and salvation uh, for everyone who would believe. And, uh, and, but before that, for those three years before that, he's going to be doing what I like to call some worldview modification. Worldview modification. Now, what is your worldview? Uh, your worldview is how you see the world. It's how you interpret things going on around you. And it's all the things that you value, that you think are important, all the things that you think are, are the, the highest priority in life, uh, the, the things that you give respect to, the things you don't give respect to, all of those things are part of your worldview. And uh, for the Jewish people, God has given them a worldview. You look at the Old Testament, you look at uh, Genesis through Leviticus, uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy uh, even, uh, and of course the whole Old Testament too, but um, God handed them down a worldview. This is important. This is not important. These are the things you value. These are the things uh, that should be your priority in life. He gave that to them. And 
Uh, he's given us the whole New Testament too, but even Christians, um, anybody that God has spoken to has given them revelation, has given them their worldview, has given them everything that they need to live right, to live the way He wants them to live, uh, we get off track. Our worldview, our God-given worldview, we have to be reminded of it continually because we take it the wrong direction. Uh, and so before Jesus goes to the cross, He's going to His people. He's not going to pagans who have never heard uh, of God before, who have never heard the law before, who have never heard the Ten Commandments before. None of that. He's going to His own people, and He's going to be interacting with them, talking to them about what's important, about what's important. He's going to start modifying their worldview. And we all need some worldview modification. Uh, even now, for, for Christians, and I'll even say for Western society, uh, our worldview is uh, traditionally based on what we call Judeo-Christian beliefs and ethics, morals. Um, you can say that the Greeks and the Romans are the ones that founded Western society, but actually Matthew chapter 5 through 7 has probably done more than the Greeks or the Romans ever did uh, to establish our morality and what is good and right in Western society. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And now this sermon series that I'm doing right here is not going to be the whole Sermon on the Mount. Uh, that, that will actually take many months, and we will do that. We, were, we are going to have in the future a, a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, but it is so exhaustive, it is so exhausting uh, to even think about how to map that out that I'm not going to do it yet. Uh, it will take many, many months when we get to it. But first, I'm going to spend, guess what, eight or nine weeks just on the first few verses. And those first few verses are what we call uh, the Beatitudes, what we call the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes, uh, it's, it's the blessings, the blessings, the blessedness the people who are blessed. Who are the people who are blessed? Uh, that is what the Beatitudes is. I, I, I guess I've never seen, I've always thought that this would be a, a good way to, um, to talk about the Beatitudes is to say that they are the attitudes that you should be, the Beatitudes. Be this way. Don't be that way. Be this way. Have this attitude. Uh, but I don't think I've ever seen anybody write that book or, or make that up. Surely somebody has. Surely I'm not the only one that sees be and attitude in there. Um, but these are the be attitudes. You should be like this. But what they really mean is the blessings. Blessed are you. Blessed are you when you have this attitude about you, when you have this view of yourself, uh, when you take upon yourself this demeanor. And then the rest of the Sermon on the Mount that follows after that is Jesus giving the worldview modification. For those of you who like really deep, analysis of the text, I'll just say this. I don't, no scholar believes that the Sermon on the Mount is really just one sermon that Jesus gave. If it is, boy, he was bouncing all over the place. Uh, it, it, if you just sit and read Matthew chapter 5 through 7, it uh, probably take you about 20 minutes. But to flesh all of that out will take us months. And so uh, when we look at the Sermon on the Mount, don't, don't really just look at it as one sermon that Jesus gave. Think of it as this is his entire ministry platform. Everything that he goes everywhere teaching, these are the kinds of things that he teaches. And so when you see two or three verses in the Sermon on the Mount on, say, adultery or murder, don't think that that's all that Jesus had to say about those things. Think of it as 
Jesus gave this sermon one day, and here's the snippet of it. Here's the three verses, the two or three sentences that uh, that I'm gonna that, that Matthew's gonna take and put it all in. But think of that as being its own sermon, its own whole sermon um, by itself. Jesus taught so much that Matthew has taken it and distilled it down to a concentrate, and then he's put it in in three chapters here. Oh, that we had so much more of it. Oh, that we had everything that Jesus ever taught fleshed out, not in concentrate form, but fleshed out completely for us, unpacked and, and, and everything that we have. But we don't have that. And like John said, the whole world couldn't fill the books if we did it that way. So Matthew has said, all right, how do I take everything he said about loving your neighbor and how do I put that right here? How do I take everything that he talked about giving to the needy and put it in here? I'll give it these four or five verses, and that's just got to be enough because I don't have enough pen. I don't have enough parchment. I don't have enough time, and the scroll would be too heavy to take to somebody if I wrote it out, uh, wrote out everything like that. So under God's inspiration, Matthew gave us these three chapters that are not entirely, not exhaustive, certainly, but Jesus' teaching on what worldview is, what morality is, what he, how he wants us to live. But again, that's not what this sermon series is going to be about. This sermon series, really to me, is about you finding out whether or not you're ready to hear the rest of it. Are you ready to hear the whole Sermon on the Mount? Do you have the proper attitude? Do you have the proper demeanor? Do you have the proper mindset to hear the whole Sermon on the Mount? We're about to find out. And of course, I'm not even going to be talking about all of that today. I'm going to be talking mostly about these two verses, verses one, verses one and two, and these are the ways that, um, and these two verses are about how you approach Jesus. How do you approach Jesus? Okay, all right. So let's pray real quick, and then let's get into our text. Heavenly Father, we love you, and we thank you for your word. We thank you for everything that it teaches us. Holy Spirit, this morning, please open our eyes to everything uh, that we need to see in this text this morning. Help us, Lord, to approach you in the proper way. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, let's go. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verses 1. I'm going to read the whole Beatitudes section, but then we're just going to come back and talk about verses 1 and 2. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when you when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so men persecuted the prophets who were before you. All right, so we're just going to look at those first two verses in depth today. And I kind of want you to see just sort of the, 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 pronouns, uh, the pronouns and verbs, sort of something like that. Um, and of course, the, the very first one I have here is he saw. And in, in our passage here, it just says, seeing the crowds. Okay, seeing the crowds. He saw the crowds. So the, the first thing I want you to know about Jesus is that he sees. 
He is observant. And He's not just observant of His heavenly Father's will, but of course He is. And He's not just observant of the law of God. He doesn't just see the law of God. He Himself is the Word of God. Uh, and he, So He doesn't just see the law of God. He sees society and He sees you. Jesus sees. And He sees societies. He sees the crowd. Uh, he sees you, but he sees the trends that the whole nation is going toward. Because we do have this herd mentality. We do have a collective feeling, uh, at least uh, in the United States, we, there might be three or four different tribes of people or whatever that you can sort of see their, um, their uh, trends or, 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 or fads or whatever they go through in their collective worldview. Jesus sees all of that. Jesus is an incredible student of society. He grew up in this society. He knows how people from Nazareth think. He knows how people from Galilee, he knows how people from Judea think. He knows how Gentiles think. He knows how the Essenes think, who are these, these people who live out in the wilderness, kind of like John the Baptist did. He knows how everybody thinks. And when he sees a crowd of people, he can see individuals, but he can see the mass of them together as well. And anytime he teaches, uh, it's very interesting to look. It's all, when he gives any kind of a teaching, if Matthew... If Matthew gives you the preface, look, who is he talking to? Is he talking to the Pharisees in the crowd? Is he talking to the scribes, the, the, the teachers of religious law in the crowd? Is he talking to the priests in the crowd? Is he talking to the rabbis in the crowd? Is he talking to one individual, man or woman, in the crowd? Or is he talking to the people? And that really should help you see who he's talking to and what his attitude towards those people are. Jesus is an observer of society. He knows what's going on. He's got his finger on the pulse of the nation like nobody else. And that is why when he says something, it's especially poignant. It's especially poignant. He knows what's going on. He knows what everybody's thinking. And a lot of times when we says when, when the Bible says, knowing their thoughts, Jesus said this. A lot of times we think of that as a miracle, that God gave him uh, spiritually some sort of information about what's going on in their head. And it certainly could be that way. But I will also tell you that Jesus knows people well enough to read you like a book. He sees what's going on. He sees what you're whispering. He sees the look on your face. He sees what people are muttering. And he knows exactly what's going on in their heart and mind. Jesus sees. The incredible thing about Jesus is that like we always know, like we always believe, he sees with such love and compassion. Even those who are his enemies, he sees them with love and compassion. Even those that he knows he's going to have a problem with, he sees them with love and compassion. And he speaks to them differently. Uh, if somebody really is poor and wretched and, and feeling down on themselves, Jesus can lift them up. If somebody else out there is combative towards him or towards God, he can cut them down too and does it all with love and compassion. But he sees. He is not a theoretician. He doesn't think in broad platitudes. He doesn't muse about things. When he teaches, he gets to the heart of the matter. In fact, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he, what it says is the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught like one with authority, not like their other teachers did. They just sort of, uh, just like any a group of theologians is uh, tempted to do, shut themselves in their office and think about things on a theoretical level. Jesus sees. He's in society. He knows exactly what society needs to hear, how they need to be convicted 
for change, and he can go right straight to the heart of the matter. The people that heard him teach went away saying, well, now I know something. Now I, now I know what God wants. Now I know what God's will is. Now I've been really convicted of sin. To me, it's not on a theoretical level anymore. It's on a very personal and practical level that I understand what God wants from me. And that's why they came to Jesus. They came to Jesus all the time because they, need, they had real problems in the real world now. And he spoke to real problems in the real world now. But he wasn't just an observer of the crowds in the midst of the crowd. What else does it say? He went up on the mountain. He went up on the mountain. You see, Jesus, he's shoulder to shoulder with hurting people all the time. But every once, not all the time, because every once in a while, he needs to remove and he needs to come back and he needs to see more broadly. He needs to think more broadly. He knows what to do in the situation because sometimes he withdraws and he goes out and he gets a breath of fresh air and he gets the bigger picture and he sees like um, uh, like an observer, like an uh, like somebody observing from the outside in. If you're in the midst of the problem, sometimes you can't see um, the the bigger picture. So Jesus withdraws uh, regularly to come out and see. Whew, now that I'm not in the middle of that situation, now that I'm not in the middle of those people, what do I see now? He comes out, I think, for rest and for recuperation. And for a different perspective, a different point of view, you got to remove yourself from the noise sometimes. And then you can make observations, and then you can discuss what's going on. Uh, the next thing that we see here is that he sat. He sat down. And I'm very thankful to Barclay, who, who was the, uh, the, the commenter that I'm using uh, for this sermon series and for just about everything I have on Matthew. I'm very thankful to him because he pointed something out that it's to the casual observer, to me, to somebody reading through this, you don't see that. Um, what he said was that rabbis and theologians, they might stand and they might muse and walk around and sort of uh, think out loud or whatever, but when they sit, when they sit, they're ready for some nitty-gritty teaching. And so here we have Jesus coming out of the crowds, going up onto the mountainside, and then... He sits down. And the next thing is, his disciples come to him. His disciples come to him, and they sat around, and they got within earshot. So he sits down, because, and, the, and to them, in their minds, they're saying, okay, he, he stands and he teaches a lot, but right now, he's sitting down like the rabbis do in the synagogue. Right now, we need to, no questions, we sit here, we listen, we absorb everything that he's saying, because he's taking a different posture. You see, Jesus talks while he's walking. He talks, he, he, he finds a place and stands and gets above the people and, and calls things out and fields questions. But when he removes himself from society, sort of like a Sabbath from society, and he goes to the, the synagogue of the mountainside, you know, it takes 10 Jewish men to make a synagogue. So everywhere Jesus went with his disciples, he had a synagogue with him and they sat down and he sat down and he took on the posture of rabbi here, because he said, you know what, now, and maybe it's because of something he saw in the crowds or some something that he saw that his, his 12 disciples, their interaction with the crowd, he sat down and said, I need to tell you something. There's something you need to know. There's some special instruction that I'm going to give right now. 
I'm going to sit down and I expect you to sit down at my feet and I expect you to cease with your questions and I expect you to absorb everything that I'm about to say right here, right now. The interesting thing about the Sermon on the Mount is that he, it says he goes up there with his disciples and then he opens his mouth and he begins to teach them and then you got the whole Sermon on the Mount. And I think uh, for people analyzing the text, the question is, wait, 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 wait. I always picture the Sermon on the Mount as him teaching thousands of people. Is he teaching thousands of people? Thousands of people or is he teaching the twelve? When it says his disciples, sometimes you don't know in the, in, in the Bible which ones he's talking about. Is it any follower of his? Any disciple of his that could be hundreds of people, or is it just the twelve? And in here, I, when we come to the application portion, I'm going to do both. I'm going to, I'm going to apply it to both, as if both are true, um, as if either are true, so that we can get, uh, so we can get the, the the full teaching. And I think that everything he taught in the Sermon on the Mount, he taught to the crowds as well. But this time, this time, it might have just been him with the twelve. So I just wonder, what was happening in the crowds? What were they teaching the crowds? What were they doing in the crowds that he said, we need to remove ourselves from the crowds, go up on the mountainside, and guys, I need you to sit around me, and I need you to, to listen up, because you've got it wrong, so I need you to hear me right here, right now. And going forward, this is the message. Not the, not the, the things that you would assume. This is the message. Um, so he came... He saw, he went out to the mountain, he sat down, his disciples came to him. He was assuming the posture of a rabbi. They were assuming the real posture of disciples. It's not a back and forth here. We don't have a back and forth in the Sermon on the Mount. We have the rabbi doing all the teaching, getting straight to the heart of the matter, and they are supposed to sit there and absorb. And then it says he opened his mouth, and Barclay uh, very uh, very astutely pointed, pointed out, actually... That's not so much of a Jewish thing to say. That's very much of a Greek thing to say. Uh, in, in ancient Greek literature, when somebody comes to a teacher or to some sort of an oracle in mythology, uh, if somebody comes to a philosopher, the philosopher might, it might say, he opened his mouth. He opened his mouth. And what it means is, not just that he spoke, but that uh, he poured forth. He poured forth from himself. Uh, he bore everything that he had in his heart and mind out to them. He didn't hold anything back, and it was special words. When you go to an oracle in Greek mythology, it's, it's to learn something that you could not have learned otherwise. When you go to a philosopher in ancient Greece, you are going to the smartest people in the world. And so when the disciples come to Jesus and he assumes the posture of a rabbi and they sit in the posture of disciples, ready to absorb everything that he says, and then Matthew says, and then he opened his mouth. Everything came out to us. He bore his heart and soul and mind, and we shared the mind of God with him right there. And everything that he said we knew was important. And everything that he said was things that we could have never come to a conclusion of on our own. It was only him and his wisdom that, were, that we, were, we received because he sat and he opened his mouth. He didn't just open his mouth. He opened his heart, he opened his mind, he opened his soul, and he opened mysteries from God uh, to us in a way that we never could have gotten before. And it impacted us. And then the very last little phrase there, he taught, he taught. Uh, and and Barclay points out the grammar of this. And, and I remember my, one of my teachers in college, he said, 
Uh, all of theology has its roots in grammar. Uh, everything, everything. there's so many nuances that can come out in the little grammatical structures. Uh, sometimes you can take them too far, but uh, other times not. And Barclay said, what, what it says here, what it says here, he taught, uh, that's, a, that's a very simplistic way of putting it in English, um, but uh, to, give it the right, to give it the right nuance would take so many English words that they just settled with he taught. Uh, but in, in Greek, it, it should sound something more like us to us in English, like he began teaching them on a continual basis things like this. And that is why a lot of scholars will say this is certainly not one sermon. This is what they heard over and over again and what they preached to the people over and over again for the next three years. He began teaching them things like this. And so Jesus is opening up mysteries continually to them. Every once in a while, uh, maybe not even everyone, maybe just continually, every time they said, Rabbi, we have a question, or every time that they did something wrong and Jesus said, no, 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 let me correct you about that. Every time, it's like he's opening up mysteries from God to them, and this happened all the time. It wasn't just a couple of times that Jesus opened up the Scriptures. Matthew, I think here, is saying all the time, on a daily basis, he said things, he did things. It was incredible to be around him, things that we never could have known, never could have understood. He taught us in this fashion all the time, and it was amazing. I think that's the way Matthew's putting it. In fact, I, I, uh, it's two verses, right? It's two verses. But if you take everything, every part of the nuances from, every, from all of it and really flesh those out, it would be an incredible paragraph. And I've written what I think is a, a good paragraph uh, to expand all the nuances of these two, two uh, passages or these two verses here. You see, Matthew isn't from the 21st century and he's not an English speaker. The English language didn't even exist when he wrote all of this. But if he, and he never writes in the first person either. Uh, it's, it's always a third person, what Jesus did, everything from Jesus' perspective. Matthew, and it seems like the other gospel writers, they don't really, they write their perspective, but they write it from the perspective of literally, literarily, uh, from Jesus' perspective. Um, but it's not a, it's not a me and I and I saw Jesus. It's a, Jesus did this and everybody saw it or whatever. Uh, but if if Matthew had been a 21st century American English speaker, I think this is this might be what he could have written, uh, and 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 it would have been much longer. But I think it would have it would have really um, hit us just exactly what these two verses are really saying. Let me let me just sort of read this. Jesus chose 12 of us, and we knew we were his disciples who would follow him everywhere. And pretty soon, huge crowds began to assemble everywhere he went. And Jesus had a real connection with the crowds. He saw their plight. He knew what it was what it was like to be one of us, just a common person. And we really appreciated that in him. He wasn't an elite religious person who looked down on us. He was right there beside us. He wanted the 12 of us to know what he was all about too, so we could teach the same kinds of things. And so one day... He went outside of the town on the side of a hill, and we went up there with him away from the crowds, and he found a nice flat place on the hillside, and he sat down. And we all gathered around him in, in hearing distance. He was still looking at the people at the bottom of the hill and in the town, and you could tell he was very concerned about them, and he was glad to see that they were there to receive the teaching. And he looked at us with this deep, penetrating look on his face, and then he took a deep breath. 
And we were just sitting there silently, ready to absorb everything that he was about to say. And he knew it, we knew it was going to be important. And this was the first time he taught us like this, but it certainly wasn't the last. Away from the crowds, he bore his heart and soul to us. He showed us the heart and mind of God. And for three years, we sat, we listened, and we absorbed. And these are the things he taught us. And then after that, we come the Beatitudes and then the Sermon on the Mount. So let me ask you this. How do you see yourself in this? Okay, um, There are two ways to look at it. There's Jesus alone with his disciples on a hillside, or it's Jesus on a hillside with throngs of people around him. Okay, One of those is true. We don't know exactly how many disciples were there. Could have been the 12, the 70, or the crowds of people. Um, but let's, let's say perspective A, it's him and the crowds. It's Jesus and the crowds. And if you're one of the crowds, Jesus is talking about having compassion on you, and he's talking about uh, how you need to have your life realigned to God's way of living. The whole Sermon on the Mount is him teaching you that you have this worldview that is God-given, but that has been set on the wrong trajectory by man and by the way that we teach the Word of God. Uh, you have received the Word of God, but you have a misunderstanding of it all. So you need to have your life, your view, your opinions, your perspectives, and your life realigned that goes right in line, right in, in the same trajectory with God's will. And that's the only way you'll be satisfied. Okay? That's a good way of looking at it. Perspective B, though, uh, has you as just sort of one of the twelve. Here's Jesus. Here's you as, as one of the twelve. Then there are the crowds of the people at the bottom of the hill in the town. And so for that way, in that way of, of looking at it, it's not just Jesus teaching you how you ought to be. It's Jesus teaching you what it's going to be like when you go out there and teach all of those people. And, and it's the content that you should be teaching them as well. So take one of the Beatitudes like this. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. In perspective A, that's Jesus talking to me about how I need to hunger and thirst uh, for righteousness because only in that way will I ever be satisfied. Only if I seek after that will I ever be satisfied. No amount of food or drink or drug or uh, diversion, distraction, entertainment will ever uh, satisfy me. Only if I hunger and thirst for Him and His righteousness, then and only then can I be satisfied. But in perspective B, you're one of the disciples. And as a, one of the disciples, what you're doing is you're looking at the crowds down there. And I'm wondering, what should my attitude be towards them and those people? And when I go to do ministry, what should I expect? And Jesus says, blessed are the hung, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they'll be filled. So you as a minister, you as a missionary, you as a Christian reaching out to the people of the world, this is something you should know. People are out there and they have appetite and they try to fill that appetite with all kinds of things, but they will never be satisfied by any of them. And so you, as a minister, need to find all those people that you can see the hunger on their face. You can see the thirst on their face. You can see the desperation in their life for satisfaction. 
and you need to turn them away from whatever it is they're trying to fill that void with and turn them to me. So this isn't just this isn't just Jesus talking about you. It is him talking about you. And if you've got hunger and thirst in your life that you have found that nothing else can fill, you need to seek Jesus. But as a minister, and you are ministers, I, I'm clergy, I am this professional clergy class, but we all do the same job. And wherever you work, if there's not a professional preacher there, and there's not, then you are the clergy of your workplace. You are the clergy of your classroom. You are the clergy of the office. And when you look at the people in your office, the people you work with, the people you come in contact with, when you see them hungering and thirsty and desperate, what do you need to give them? Do you need to give them a drink of water? Good. Do you need to give them a sandwich? Good. Do you need to give them a nice lighthearted joke? Good. But most of all, you need to give them Jesus. So one of those perspectives is right. Either it's Jesus talking to the 12 or it's Jesus talking to the crowds. I think you should look at them as both. You need to apply them as both. How is it that Jesus wants me to live? And then how is it that Jesus wants me to do ministry? How does Jesus want me to see all the people that are out there? Let me ask you some deep, penetrating questions. <laughs> Jesus sees you with great compassion. He loves you. You and he both know that your life needs some major realignment. But don't worry. He loves you, and he will remain loving you throughout the whole process. Never allow yourself to think that Jesus is as frustrated or angry with you as you are towards yourself. He sees you with compassion. But how do you see the individuals and the masses of people in the world do you see them with compassion or disdain? Remember, I can see your Facebook page. Do you see people who need help out there, or do you see people that need to hurry up and die and get out of your way and make room for the rest of us? It's probably not that extreme, but you may have had those thoughts at one time in your life. Um, I read a book a while back called A Man Called Ove, and it took place in Sweden, so his name is Ove, and that's not an American name, that's a Swedish name. Um, and Ove was a cantankerous old man. He is a curmudgeon of the highest sort. He was a complete terrible person to be around. And every other chapter, every other chapter in the book was him offending somebody in the neighborhood or in town. And every other chapter was a flashback to his earlier life. And as you see the story of his whole life unfolding, you see, you just get more and more compassionate towards him because how in the world is this guy still standing upright? It's awful, the things that have happened to him in his life. The point that the author had was that he wanted to give you some, some compassion for all the curmudgeons in your life, all those jerks that you hate. There's actually a backstory there. And Jesus knows your backstory and he knows everybody's backstory. And that's why he's able to have compassion on people because he sees how sin has ravaged their life and how they've done things, but things have been done to them too that have made them the way they are. And the only way that you'll ever have compassion on society is if you're shoulder to shoulder with them, like Jesus, 
walking through the crowds, getting to know all the people, seeing who they are, where they've come from, and what has gone on in their life. Being a good listener and saying, hey, your life is valid. Tell me your life story. I want to know everything about you. Then you'll have compassion. And then maybe even you'll have earned the right to help them. You'll be able to see from the outside in. You'll be able to see from the inside out. And then after that, you actually might earn the right to open your mouth in front of them and begin teaching them. Here's another good question for you. Have you come to Jesus for instruction? Will you sit at his feet and let him teach you? Will you admit that you don't have life figured out? Will you admit that you need a rabbi? Will you admit that you've reached the end of your own wisdom? Will you submit your own worldview to Jesus for correction? Will you silence all other opinions but his? Will you tell the world to shush so that you can hear Jesus? Will you silence all other supposed oracles? And do you regard Jesus as merely one source among many? Do you, rem- do you regard him as, well, he's the best source? Or do you look at him and regard him as the source? All other sources are flawed and faulty. He is the source. He's the only source that I want for all my opinions and all the wisdom in my life. And here's the next one. Do you expect him to treat, speak truth into your life, into every part of your life? Do you think that Jesus actually has an opinion about every part of your life? And will you allow him to do his work without you pushing back against him? Do you expect him to lay bare all of his thoughts and opinions to you? God is mysterious. There are certain things that we, that we may not understand, will not understand. And there's a certain aspect in which we have to uh, walk by faith because he doesn't want to give us all information. But do you trust that whatever information you really need for life, he will give you? Do you trust that? Do you expect to lay bare your life to him? Will you do him the honor of exposing all of your thoughts and feelings and opinions to him? Are you willing to let Jesus realign your whole life? If you are, then I have good news. You're ready for the Sermon on the Mount. If you're not, keep praying. You've got one week to turn all that over because next week we're going to start finding out who are the kinds of people that are really ready to hear the whole Sermon on the Mount. Who are the kinds of people who are really ready to have Jesus uh, align them, realign them, modify their worldview so that it's right? Next week, we'll start out with, um, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This week, contemplate what that could possibly mean, what it means to you, and get ready, because there's some good heavy stuff coming. Okay? Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. Lord, get our hearts and minds in the right space so that we are ready to hear everything that you've got to teach. Help us to come sit at your feet. Help us to come with great expectation that you will open your mouth and out of it will come things that we never thought we'd ever know. Lord, can 
Teach us on a continual basis and help us to be good disciples. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, love you. Have a great week. See you next Sunday. Bye.